All right, we're in the Gospel of John. We've, uh, I'm, I'm kind of loud here. We're in the Gospel of John, and I'm moving to the 19th chapter. We finished the 18th chapter, and we've been going through the Gospel of John for a long time now, and we're coming down to the closing chapters of John. Turn to the 19th chapter. Um, Okay, you can stand together for the reading of God's word. The, uh, the trial is over now. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling I'm kind of loud. Am I loud? I'm feeling I'm loud. Are you hearing me back there? I'm feeling I'm loud. Turn me down. Are you turning me down? Thank you. Is that better? Okay. Verse 16. Finally... Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Remember, we just gone through the trial and talked about that last week. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Drop down to verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed so that scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Lord, add his blessing to the scriptures. You may be seated. Let's read that together. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. We, we started last week's sermon with the Apostles' Creed in looking at that and the importance of that in the life of the church, the Apostles' Creed basically is theology that the Bible is teaching to us about who Jesus is. And there's a section where it says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and he descended into hell. Uh, it's talking about the atonement there. It's talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 19, as we were looking at it today, there's almost, almost a complete view of what the cross means in our lives. The, the, what the death of Jesus means to us as Christian people. It's a little weird to be talking about this in August. Usually we're talking about this around Good Friday 
And, uh, you know, in, in April, the end of April, right in through there, as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. But, you know, back in the 11th century, the 12th century, they used the Gregorian calendar. And uh, New Year began around March 25th. And so they, at the first day of the New Year was Easter. Think about the impact of that. The first day of the New Year was Easter. So we're okay. <laughs> we're in August, but we're going to talk about about the cross and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at three statements that are made here. I put them in yellow as we read through it, that Jesus makes. He says, first of all, I thirst. Secondly, he says, it's finished. And thirdly, he says, woman, see your son, son, see your mother. Three powerful statements that he makes from the cross. They tell us why Jesus went to the cross. They tell us what he did there, and they tell us how it changes us. And I want you to know that when, when, uh, when I look at Scripture and we start to talk about the Word of God, I'm not doing this because it's a job. I'm not doing this. And if I was, I'd quit. I mean, each, each passage of Scripture, each thing that we look at is life-giving and is eternal. And we're here because of that. And we share because of that. And we minister because of that. And the first thing we see here is this question that Jesus is dealing with is, why did he go to the cross? It's in verse 28. Why did he go to the cross? Jesus said, I thirst. I thirst. In the Bible, thirst is a metaphor for, for uh, terminal spiritual, agonizing, emptiness, and death. And we see this all through Scripture, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in the Psalms, in the prophets of the Old Testament. It talks about when people move away from God, they're said to be thirsty. And Isaiah puts it this way. Actually, it says that without God, you're going to die. You're going to die. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, you have turned away from me the fountain of living water, and you've turned to other cisterns, you've dug other wells, but you're going to die of thirst because they will not hold water. So the Bible is saying here there's something about your soul, something about your life that needs every bit as much water as your body does. If you don't have it, your soul dies. That's what it says. Now, I'll spare you the gory details here, but, but death by dehydration is terrible. Two things happen to Jesus on the cross, suffocation and dehydration. Those are the things that are happening to his bodies. And the writers of the Bible understood this. I mean, they lived in an arid, hot climate. They understood what dehydration was all about. There was a, it's a hot climate. It's, there's no technology there. There's no air conditioning, no running water, no refrigeration. The sun is beating down. And the first stage of thirst is this sense of being shriveled, that your body begins to shrivel. The last stage is you feel like your insides are just burning. They're on fire. And it's a burning that just about kills you. But it's not... The sun on the outside is what Jesus is talking about here. It's an internal thing that's happening. Every molecule of your body needs water, and it cries out for water. 
and you're being consumed, and there's a fire ignited. There's an inner implosion that's happening in life. And the Bible is saying, if you put the bucket of your soul down any place, any other place than God, any other cause, any other love, you're going to die of thirst because it's an internal thing. It's an internal thing. Jesus told the story, you remember, in Luke 16, and Lazarus and the rich man, you know the story, you know where I'm going with this. In, in this life, Lazarus is the poor guy, and he's always he's at, the beg, he's at the step of the rich guy begging for food, and he never gets any help and, uh, uh, because the rich man is a guy who only cares about power, only cares about himself, only cares about his wealth, doesn't care about the poor, doesn't care about Lazarus, doesn't care about people that are hurting. So they both die, right? We know the parable. And the rich man goes to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man looks up and he sees Lazarus in heaven and he calls out. And he says, I thirst, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, tell Lazarus to dip his finger in some water and cool my tongue. You know, remember? Remember the story? I'm in agony here in this fire. It's pretty interesting. In the parable, there's no word of repentance there's no word of asking for forgiveness. He's still treating Lazarus as if he's a servant. He's still in that mode that he was on earth. Still giving orders. Send Lazarus, my errand boy. Send him. Uh, the rich man is still holding on to his power that he wanted. Cool water is what I need to satisfy me. And Abraham looks down and says, you already have what you wanted. You already have what you wanted. And I know people have a lot of trouble with, with this concept of hell. I mean, I have problems with it myself. People think at the end of, end of life, people say, no, no, no. Uh, the people are begging, Lord, please forgive me. And God says, no, too late, and turns up the heat. And that's kind of a synopsis of that. C.S. Lewis in The Great Divorce talks about this. And he says that in hell... The main burning is on the inside. The main burning is on the inside. When you get sucking on anything but God, when you start sucking the life out of anything but God, what your soul needs, you start to burn. Because every molecule of your soul, every molecule of your spirit cries out for God like your body cries out for water, and you burn up. You know, it's what we, we looked at in... in um, uh, you know the passage, we have a song that we sing about this in Psalms 42, which says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for thee, O God. And there's this, this, this panting. And the song goes, You alone are my heart's desire. You know the, the words of this. You alone are my heart's desire. I seek after you, O God. I want you, O God. So when Jesus said, I thirst, what was he saying? Of the cross. Somebody says, well, he's thirsty, that's it. I mean, he's on the cross, he hasn't had anything for so long, he's being crucified, it's midday, right? It's hot outside, that's all it means. No, 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 it means so much more. Listen, Jesus, and, and then we were talking about this on, in our small group on Friday night about words that are used in Scripture and when words are used and when they're not used. And Jesus, at this point of the trial and moving into the crucifixion, hasn't said a word 
about anything, about any discomfort, about any pain or anything. After all he's been through, after the beatings that he's had, at his first trial, they blindfolded him, they hit him with their fists, they said prophesy him, they scourged him, which is the picture there, they whipped him. Every blow ripped him apart, ripped his back. They jammed a crown of thorns down on his head, struck his face with a club. And what does he say? Over and over and over, all the writers of Scripture say this, he never opened his mouth. He never opened his mouth. He never said, I hurt. The, the, the spiritual says he never said a mumbling word. He never said, ouch. All these gospel writers never complained. All the beatings, all the nails, the crown of thorns, the clubs, the piercing. And now he says, I thirst. You think he's just thirsty for water? Verse 17 kind of explains that to us. No, 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 no. Even there it says that scriptures might be fulfilled. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. What scriptures are these? Well, well one this pretty remarkable scripture, Psalms 22, where it says, I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a clay plot in a furnace. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. You say, how do you know that's talking about Jesus here? Well, jump back to verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1. It starts off, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? This is a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm. Why is Jesus now crying about thirst in Scripture here? Listen, he's experiencing something that the scourge, that the whip, that the spear, that the nails, that the crown of thorns, the clubbing, the beating, the pulling out of his beard on his head, those things were like mosquito bites compared to what he's going through. And what he's suffering is, the creed says he was going to hell. When he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that hyperbole? Is that hyperbole? When he says, I thirst... Is he really just thirsty? Why did he go to the cross? Why did he go to the cross? He didn't just go there to get beaten for you. He didn't go there to get pierced and stabbed. Other people can do that. And they have. We celebrate Veterans Day, Memorial Day, people that have died for other people. They've, there's people that have done that in ter terrible atrocities that have happened to our soldiers and others. Other people died for their families. Other people died for their friends, their nation. They, they went through all of that until you understand the magnitude of why he went. You won't understand the magnitude of what he did. What he did. And that is he went to hell. He went to hell on the cross. You know, I've said before, and I've preached on the cross before, it's not all this other stuff. It's what happened on the cross. What is it on the cross that happened for our salvation? What happened there on Calvary? You know, a, I'm going to date myself here. There's an old song that we, we, uh, I liked growing up from the musical Man of La Mancha. You all remember? And uh, The Impossible Dream. Remember that song, The Impossible Dream? 
And he's singing about how he wants to, to live his life. And, and he comes to that point, he says, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause, right? Heavenly cause. That's hyperbole. That's hyperbole. No one's ever done that but one. But one. Nobody has ever done what Jesus has done on the cross. Do you understand? Jesus was not just beaten for you. He wasn't just nailed for you. He wasn't speared for you, stabbed for you. That could have happened in three hours. That could have happened in three hours. You can be beaten and stabbed for three hours. You can be in that kind of pain for three hours. On the cross, Jesus Christ experienced eternal spiritual death. The wrath of God that came upon him. He experienced what you and I would experience if you were sent to hell. It would be, you, it would be a, like the, the, a holocaust of fire and separation from God. Separation from God. Uh, Jesus felt as if he was lost forever. I'm watching uh, my wife in her mind and the lostness. Forever lostness. Forever separated from God. The lostness of it. That, that is happening here. Jesus felt as if he was separated from the Father forever. And he went to hell. That's it. That's it. And he did it for you. He did it for you. In other words, he says, I marched into hell so you could have heaven. I marched into hell. I had eternal thirst so that you could have the fountain of life Nothing less than that. Nothing less than that. That's far more than most of us think, really, when we think about, you know, uh, he has died for me, you know. So lest you understand that he marched into hell, lest you understood he's separated from the Father. My God, my God, why? Why have you separated me? You, don't under, you won't understand the second point. And the second point is this. What did he do? Verse 30. Verse 30, he said, it is finished. Now, in the ancient... English, the rendering is one single word, tetelestai, tetelestai, one word. In English, it really doesn't come across as well as uh, in, in, in the, uh, what Scripture is saying here, and here's why. It sounds passive. It sounds passive, doesn't it? It's finished. You know? In English, it means um, it's over. It's over. But that's not what he's saying. That's not what scripture is saying here. When he says to telestai, telos is the Greek word for design or plan. That's the first part of the word, the design or the plan. So he's not saying something has happened to me. He's talking about a plan that he has accomplished. It is accomplished. It's done. It's a plan. God's plan is what he's talking about here. Here is Jesus Nobody more helpless than he is. He's stretched out on a cross. Hands are nailed. Feet are nailed. 
He can't even scratch his nose, completely powerless, totally defeated in every way, and his last words are, I've done it. I've accomplished it. The commentators say, well, there's another part of that Greek word there that is really saying the Greek tense adds to it, and it says it's utterly finished. It is completely done, completely done. Well, that begs the question, as I think about that, well, what's done? What has he done? In 1 Peter 3.18, we read this from Jesus Christ, died for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do what? To bring us to God. To bring us to God. To bring us to God. What that means is, Jesus is saying, I have traveled the infinite distance between you and God, and there's not an inch left. I have done everything necessary to bring you into his arms. There's not one thing left for you to do. I've done it completely. There's nothing else for you to do at all, period. And he died. And he died. People say, well, I've heard that before. I've heard that before, that Jesus experienced hell on the cross, which is what we deserved. He accomplished everything necessary for us to, to, uh, to, to live in, in his glorious sight right now, to be with him. You know, Christianity, in, is one, in one word, it would be tetelestai. It's done. It's done. It's all done. When Buddha died... Tradition tells us that his last words were, strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. The last words of Jesus are, don't you dare strive. Don't you dare strive. Uh, probably the person in the church that knows my disdain for that word striving is Jeff Smith. Uh, when we were talking about some different things in the church years ago, the striving you know, that I can strive for things. All the striving is done. That's what Jesus is saying. The gospel says, receive the finished work of Jesus Christ. Receive the work of Jesus Christ. Religion says, if you finish the work, someday God might accept you. If you're a good boy and a good girl and you do all the right rules and all the things, and, and, and God might bless you. The gospel says, in the finished work of Jesus you get love and acceptance and all the blessings now. Ephesians 1, the blessings of God, Ephesians chapter 1. Do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that? No, you don't, and I don't either. You say, well, what do you mean by that? You don't. You don't. You're, you're a preacher. <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. There are two ways to believe something. It's like a guy who's driving without his seatbelt. Right? And you say, hey, 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 you know the statistics, don't you? You understand what you're doing here? And he says, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, don't care. A year later, you see the same guy, and you're, you're talking to him. You see him. He's, got his, he's putting his seatbelt on. You say, hey, what are you putting your seatbelt on for? And he says, well, he says, you know, I visited a friend of mine who went through the windshield and messed him up really bad. Messed him up really bad. 
Now I always wear my seatbelt. So are you saying that you really didn't believe it before? He says, well, no. I believed, but I didn't believe. I believed, but I didn't believe. I did believe, but I wasn't affected by it. I didn't get any new information when I saw him there, but all the information sort of just was new to me. You see, it's, it's one thing to say, I believe Jesus Christ and the, commit, uh, the, 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 the commitment of his work on the cross. It's another thing to really believe it. It really is. It's another thing to appropriate it in your life. To appropriate it in your life. I see this all the time in my life. And I say, Lord, I believe. Like the, like the guy with his son that wanted to be healed. You know, he's talking to Jesus. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. That's me. That's me. Because I fail so many times. So many times. I believe, help my unbelief. Because I struggle with it many times. You see... Because we don't know the magnitude of what he did on the cross, we screw it up. We screw it up. For example, people say, I, I, I've messed up my life. And what I like about Christianity is he's going to forgive me and he's going to give me a second chance. He's going to forgive me. I'm going to be the man. I'm going to be the woman. I'm going to be the, the, the son, the daughter, the wife. I should always be. Jesus is going to give me a second chance to run this race. Now, be careful. Be careful. I saw an old movie. It was very interesting. And it was about a woman who had a crisis in her life. And for 20 minutes she's, in this movie, she's struggling with this crisis. And at the end of the 20 minutes, she gets shot and she dies. And she's falling down. And as she falls down, she says, I want another chance. Because it's a movie, suddenly she gets 20 minutes back. And she's getting a second chance. And she, she deals with it in the crisis. And but the second time, she's having difficulty again, but her boyfriend, whom she's trying to save, gets run over by a truck. So she's lying there dying, and they both look at each other and say, if only we had a second chance. And because it's a movie, they go back a third time, and this time she gets it right, and they're rich, and they're happy, and everything is wonderful. Isn't it wonderful? Because grace is a second chance, right? right? Grace is a second chance. Well, yeah, it is a second chance. It's at least that. It's at least that. But Christian grace is so much more. So much more. Now, be careful. People say, well, well I, I'm going to ask Jesus into my life. I'm going to really live for Jesus now. And I've heard this in my ministry years and years. Where, 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 let's, let's just give you a quick example of, a, of, of an individual whose, whose father died. And his father was a pillar in the church and, and wonderful. He said, oh, I, I, need, I need to change my life now because my dad's gone and I need to pick up the slack and I need to live for Jesus I get, because of my dad. I'm going to really live for the Jesus. Even, even though you have a general idea that Jesus Christ has pardoned you on the cross and he forgives you, do you understand that that belief 
completes you. It completes you. You think Jesus died on the cross so I could have one more chance to prove I'm worthy? No. Jesus Christ died on the cross to be your worthiness. Not because your dad died. It's not, no, 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 no. That's only a trigger. That's only a trigger. Jesus was destroyed for you. He was destroyed for you. He paid it all. To Telestai. It's over. He's done it all. There are a lot of people who, when they say, I'm going to live my life for Jesus Christ, what they really mean is, I'm going to try hard. I'm going to strive. I hope I'll make it. Understand, it's finished. It's finished on the cross. And as a result, a lot of people kind of get Christianity. They float in and out. They kind of get it. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pray. I'm going to come to church, read my Bible. And you know what? After a while, that's a drag. That's just a drag. It's a grind, isn't it? I got to do this, and I got to do this, and I got I to do this. You've been trying to turn your life around. Yes, it's hard, it, but it shouldn't be a grind. At least understand. Understand. You who have been Christians for a long time, have been in the faith for years, can you say and understand it's finished? It is finished. That he loves you, that love is unconditional, that he is your worthiness, he is your holiness. He is your righteousness. He has completed the race. He's gone all the way to bring you to God. When I received him as my Savior and my Lord, and my life has been rocky, when I say, Father, accept me into your family and love me not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done, Jesus says, that's done. It's finished. It's over. Abide in it. Rest in it. Abide there. Enjoy it. We're getting it wrong. We get it wrong. And we get it wrong every day. We're not putting our seatbelts on. We don't believe it. Because we're still trying. I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. The last thing here I want to show you as I look at this scripture is if you see the magnitude of why he went to the cross and you see the magnitude of what he did, it will utterly change the way you live. Utterly change the way you live. Jesus looks down from the cross and he says, Mother, look at your son. And he's pointing to John. John's standing there. And then he, he says to John, look at your mother. This is unbelievably significant. People say, well, that's so sweet. That's well, more than sweet. This is, this is so powerful. It's just not a sweet thing to do. I mean, it's nice that he did it. But 
<laughs> he's just he's not trying to be sweet here. You know, there's, there's, there's something going on. There's something that he's saying here that's just so powerful. And it's something we ne- don't necessarily like or we grab or we understand perfectly. You have to remember this is back in a time when there was no nursing homes, right? There was no pensions. There was, there was no, this is before Medicare and Social Security, before Florida was built. You know, because they didn't have Florida built yet. Other, other people, older people had to live with their parents. But now we have Florida. She was living with Jesus. She was living with Jesus. He's about to die. So he has to make provisions for her. John chapter 7, we've looked at this weeks ago, says Jesus had a bunch of brothers, right? He had a bunch of brothers, but his brothers don't believe the gospel. What he's really saying is, now listen to me, this is so powerful, all relationships at the foot of the cross, change. Even mother and son. All relationships at the foot of the cross change. All relationships. I'm going to put it this way. If you're a Christian and you're here today, the other people in this room who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are your mother and your father and your sister and your brothers. Jesus says the cross so completely changes you that your relationship you have to others who also believe in the cross, who also believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is the strongest relationship you have. It brings you into community, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. See, it's normal to read the Bible, and I do it and you do it, through a cultural grid our culture. So when we read the Bible, we tend to filter out things that don't quite fit with our culture. I don't, that, 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 that's not, can't be, you know, can't. So we live, in, we live in an individualistic culture, don't we? It's all about me. When we go to the cross, we say, I want to know how the cross will, will, what will the cross do for me? What will the cross do for me? How is the cross going to make me feel good? Well, what's it going to do for my life? So when you look at his infinite love, it changes the way I think about myself, first of all. Look at how it changes my relationship, first of all, with God. I'm forgiven. I'm complete. That's great. That's great. You know. But the Bible says once the cross comes into your life and that change takes place, that changes your relationship with everybody. It, it's no longer about you. You see, what happens is if the cross is the thing that really makes me understand who I am, then my social status doesn't matter anymore to me. My family name doesn't mean as much anymore to me. My pedigree, my race, my culture doesn't mean as much to me anymore. My relationship to other Christians now becomes the strongest relationship in my life. You know, a limited thing, you know, I don't have any family around here. You know, I got my, my son over there and my other son there, but all of my brothers and sisters and whatnot, I haven't seen them in years. I mean, really, I haven't seen them in years. The strongest relationship I have are here in this church right now.
So you might be thinking of the cross in general terms. You know, he loves me, he forgives me. But you haven't really understood how completely it changes your attitude, not only toward Christians, but non-Christians as well. You know, what does the cross mean? When you deal with persons who are different than you, when you deal with maybe enemies, we have enemies, right? In the cross, God says to you and me, he sent his son to die for you while you were still an enemy of God. So in the cross, God says, look at the lengths to which I go to make space for you in my life. Look at the lengths to which I go to make space for you in my heart. When Christians reach out to other people who don't believe and have a completely different attitude, if the cross of Jesus has really struck you, it changes your attitude toward one another in the body of Christ, changes your attitude toward non-Christians, it changes you completely. Do you believe that? Changes you completely. Paul says it this way. This is my father's life verse. In the cross of Christ I glory, because through the cross the world is crucified to me and I to the world. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means my relationship to the world is completely changed. I've been, I'm dead to that. I'm crucified to that. Nothing controls me like the cross. Nothing controls me like Jesus. Nothing even looks like it used to when I look out at the world. I see with different glasses what God is doing. That's how absolutely pervasive and sweeping the effect of the cross is on our lives as Christian people. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that? I haven't to the degree I want to. I really want to. Maybe we can just go together on this journey of drawing closer to the Lord. Let's pray together. So our Father, we're, we're, uh, we're just enamored, blown away by the cross and what it means. We struggle. We struggle and we struggle and we strive and we, we try to do, do, do and uh, work and, and it gets so old and so stressful and so unfulfilling When the Lord says, I've done it all, why don't you just abide in my love? Why don't you rest from your labors and trust in my atoning work at Calvary? I've done it. I've done it. Completely, utterly over. Father, we, 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 we pray that we absorb that into our not only our minds but our lives that we're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ in complete truth, in complete favor. He has said, I love you, I love you, I love you, and the cross just just we, we look at the cross that that explodes in our mind that you know, yeah, that's true. And what he did for us on Calvary, what he did for us. And he's able to help me now.
He's able to, to help me in my circumstance of what I'm going through in my life. And I trust him completely. And I want to, I want to, Lord, I just want, I just want to say, Lord, I love you. I trust you. Do what you do. And keep your hand upon me. And that's our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.